Hey, welcome to this Monday lecture. So good to see you all. We are pushing forward in the creed. Very exciting. It's getting longer now. We actually have to think about it as we say it. It's not just like I or I, or I believe, okay? So it's I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And then our new phrase for today, it's our longest phrase yet, I believe in Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord. Okay, you got that? <laughs> I believe in Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord. Can we try to recite the creed up to this point then, adding our new long phrase? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. Okay. We now arrive at the name of Jesus in the creed. So it's a great moment. For Christians, and this is crucial, for Christians, the entire Bible is to be interpreted in light of Jesus, pointing toward Jesus and with Jesus as the telos, the end, the fulfillment, and as the point of Scripture. Now, what does this mean and what does this not mean? I will say maybe first, because it's maybe easier to say what this does not mean. This does not mean that we have to get kind of zany or weird or crazy and start to see Jesus in odd little word plays and symbols or every time you read a sentence in the Old Testament, you have to somehow make it relevant to Jesus in your mind at that moment. I don't think it means that. Although, there's a good pedigree in the history of Christian interpretation for doing things like that, actually. Just by way of reminding ourselves that Jesus is the end point, the goal, the fulfillment of where we're going with all of this. So, let me give an example that I think is a good example. It's not very zany. Back in the book of Genesis, there's a story, it's a very famous story in the Bible, where Abraham has a son, and he's asked to, to sacrifice his son. And his son gets wood piled up on his back, and they go up to the top of this mountain, and God has required this. God doesn't say why he requires it, he just requires it. And he almost sacrifices the son, but he actually doesn't. For readers of the Bible, or for those of you who are maybe have been in church for longer or more familiar with the faith, you, you maybe know that there are resonances in that story with another story that comes later, where Jesus, as God's son, is sacrificed is killed somehow at God's own request or at God's own need or at least to some greater meaning within God's economy of salvation and humans and Jesus and all this stuff and then interpreters got even deeper into it and they were like well there's a scene in the New Testament where Jesus is, is asked to carry his cross a cross is like an instrument on which people were impaled or killed and it's made of wood and also Isaac was asked to carry the wood on his back while going up the hill to his death and so, people were, and so Christians were like, ah, do you see the parallels? It's so beautiful. The, the sacrifice of the son carrying the wood on his back. And so um, in Jesus, this motif, this fulfillment, this beginning point that was started with Abraham in this request is thus fulfilled and made complete and made perfect in Jesus. And so there are many other things like that that Christian readers have done with the Bible. I don't think that reading the Bible with Jesus as its goal, as its end point, as I'm suggesting, means you have to come up with something that slick or that kind of awesome in terms of typology or symbolism at every single point. It does mean, though, that this story for Christians is going somewhere, okay? There are long stretches of narrative uh, and text that go by in the Old Testament. And as a reader, you might begin to wonder, where is this going? Okay? So it's not always obvious for readers that the, that the Bible is headed toward Jesus. It's not going to be obvious at every point. Um, I'm asking you, I think this week, I'm asking you to read a longer stretch, uh, section of text 
a longer stretch of text than I've asked you to read at any point so far in the semester, and I think at any point in the future. So this is our longest set of readings. We have, we have reached it. So you've got to buckle down, sort of gird your loins, okay? We're doing this. This is the big one. Where is all this reading going? Um, this week, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to get from the end of the Torah all the way through Israel's settlement in the land and all the way through Israel's first two kings, Saul and David. And where does this take us and what does this have to do with our section of the creed for this week? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Well, the narrative this week is going to take us to David. And as we're going to find out, David is not a bad point to have our first interaction with Jesus in a more specific way. In terms of the terminology and the language and the symbolism in the spiritual life of Israel that makes the Jesus event make sense, that gives it its meaning. We can use terms um, just devoid of meaning, or, or we can use vague terms with whatever meanings they have in our minds today, but we can get a deeper, better, richer picture of what early Christians meant when they talked about Jesus if we get a sense for where this language came from in the life of Israel. The earliest Christians were Jews. They were not just random people. They were in a very particular place. They were clustered around Jerusalem and Israel. Jerusalem's not the capital yet. Our people haven't even gotten into Israel yet, okay, in our story. But we're going to get them there today. And in fact, we're even going to get them a capital, Jerusalem, today as well. So we're getting that far in the story suddenly. Um, but, but, but to be in that place and at that time meant very specific things for Jesus' first audience. Jesus' Bible, in a sense, I mean, this is a little bit of a generalization in some ways that are just too technical for where, where we are right now, but take my word for it. In a sense, the scriptures, the holy God's word for Israel during the time of Jesus was the Old Testament, was the Hebrew scriptures that we are now reading. It also included other texts, too, and writings that were really important to them as well, writings that we're not studying and writings that actually never became canonized or set in text in the Old Testament as we now know it. But suffice it to say, the New Testament authors at least saw as a major core of Jesus' experience of literature and belief the text that we now are reading as the Old Testament, as the Hebrew Bible. So in a sense, you could say idiomatically, we're reading Jesus' Bible in the Old Testament. So we could even say, apart from even its, its direction toward Jesus, the Old Testament is important in and of itself as Israel's story because that's what it was to Jesus. And as a Christian, if you're to walk in Jesus' path in any way whatsoever— or to read and experience what Jesus experienced. This is what Christians are called on to do, by the way. Um, reading and understanding Israel's story in this regard is super important. In fact, by way of getting some traction on this spiritual, um, intellectual milieu, life of Jesus, we're going we're gonna to talk about some key concepts after we summarize a little bit. And these concepts are, in no particular order, land. What is the land for Israel? King. What does it mean to be a king in ancient Israel? Why, why does that language come into play? The language of Messiah. Messiah, we've maybe heard this word before. What does this mean in terms of Jesus in ancient Israel? Son, S-O-N, son. We had a father, the Father Almighty. What does it mean for Jesus Christ to be God's son? Okay, His only son, in fact. That's our language in the creed for today. And then Lord. We'll see if we get to Lord. Um, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? What does that word Lord even mean? Okay, so those are our terms for today we eventually want to unpack when we get there. Now, first, how about a little plot overview? Let's go into story time. Story mode. What has happened 
And what happens? I want to prepare you for your reading. It's a lot of reading. It's going to be Bible. The textbook will also give you some support. I also have those support videos up there on the YouTube page. I don't know how helpful those have been, but if you feel like you're lost a little bit and you want another talk through, those are totally there and ready, ready and waiting for you. Um, I want to take you all the way through this set of material. The Torah, which we've already done. We'll summarize that really quick. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, and all the way through 2 Samuel chapter 7 in particular. That's where we're going to get this week. Can we read all those books in their entirety? No, it would take forever. It'd be tough. I've given you selections, though, and I want to frame it for you. So the Torah, I mean, what happened in the Torah? God created the world, right? We, we know that. That was good. Um, and promised Abram and Sarai, later Abraham and Sarah, that he would provide for them land and kids. We know they got the kids. They were multiplying in Egypt like crazy. The Egyptians were afraid of them, in fact. Um, but they somehow have always missed the land. Why do they keep missing the land? They end up in Egypt because of a famine, no land there. Um, Abraham and Sarah, kind of, they started in the land. In fact, the first piece of land they acquire was Sarah's grave when Abraham buries Sarah in the book of Genesis. But they don't really have the full boundaries of this place, of this space that God had promised Abraham that he would have. And in fact, we want to recall, recall from Genesis chapter 12, if you have a Bible and you want to go through this walking tour with me, Feel free to get that out at this time. Um, in Genesis chapter 12, to kick off this whole story in the Torah, really in a way, God had made a promise to Abraham and Sarah. And it was an explosive promise. It's a serious promise. On the one hand, a promise very specific. But on the other hand, it had, it had this kind of tendency towards something very big, towards something universal. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. So that right there, you have the duality of the specific and the universal. I will make you, one person, into a great nation. Huge, big. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So again, the specific, the universal. You get the sense that God is saying to Abraham, I'm so into you. I will actually, if, if someone curses you, I'm going to find that person. I'm going to curse him or her. It's like very specific, almost like God is like his personal bodyguard on the one hand. Then on the other hand, he's saying, I'm actually going to bless every single human on earth. I mean, all people? Who is excluded from blessing all people on earth? I mean, all seems to mean just all. So that's like as big as it can possibly be in terms of the human family, okay? Really big. I will bless all the peoples of the earth through you. Is that promise fulfilled as we see it in the Torah? No, it's not. Seems not to be. Um, we have small families wandering around. They get trapped in Egypt. They end up getting out of Egypt, as we know. They go to the mountain of God, Sinai. They, God is thundering down laws. Israel is cowering at the foot of the mountain. God is threatening to kill them if they touch the mountain. In fact, God does kill them. I mean, this is one of the dark horrors of the Torah, the dark side of the Torah. God actually ends up killing the entire Exodus generation in the wilderness. He kills all of them, the whole group dead in the desert for complaining, grousing, disobeying, intermarrying with other women that they weren't supposed to marry, worshiping gods they weren't supposed to worship, and the whole thing ends in kind of a disaster. So who is it actually that we have at the beginning of the book of Joshua, after Moses himself even dies, to inherit this new land? Well, they had kids. They were even having kids during the wilderness generation, okay? And that generation, because they had wandered for 40 years in the biblical timeline, will come in and they are raring to go to inherit the land. This is the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is essentially a story for how Israel gets the land. 
Um, on the one hand, this is the stuff of Sunday school stories. For those of you who grew up in church, you might remember stories about like Joshua and the battle and Jericho and marching around the walls and the walls came tumbling down and you know, those famous stories are truly there. There were other things though that were censored and probably censored in Sunday school, censored in the children's Bible. Now that you're adults, it's time for you to hear them um, from mean Uncle Brian here in the lecture. Um, so for example, how do they get the land? Are people, is it just empty? Will they just kind of walk in and take it? No, it's, and it turns out it's not empty. It turns out that there's a native population who lives there called the Canaanites, just broadly speaking, the Canaanites. What were the Canaanites doing there? Well, I don't, you know, I don't know what they were doing there. They just lived there. It was their land. But God had said Israel was to have the land, not these people. What are you going to do with them? Make a treaty with them, ask them to leave, live alongside of them. No, actually the command in Joshua and really earlier This command, if you want to read about it in all of its gory detail, is in Deuteronomy chapter 20. The command is that they exterminate, that they kill everybody in the land who's there. Not just the men, not just the the army, okay? That would be like, you know, totalizing war, go do it. They're actually to kill the men. They're to kill the non-fighting men, the old men, the young men. They're to kill the women. They're to kill the old women. They're to, they're, to, they're, to, they're to murder 90-year-old women. Just kill them. Just wipe them out. They're to kill children. They're to kill babies. They're to kill literally every single person alive in the land. They're to even kill animals. Not even your dog gets to survive this, okay? Kill your dog. Kill your kids. Kill your little sister. Kill your mom. Kill your dad. The whole thing, total annihilation. There's a term for this even. Uh, in Hebrew, it's the term harem meaning a a ban or a prescription or something like that. So there are serious ethical issues here. I hope we can bring them up again on the panel on Friday about this. And I'm going to ask you to read about them. We've got a big section in the textbook reading this week about this problem. So I'm going to save that, okay? We could talk much more about it, obviously. So they go in and they do it. They do this in various places. Okay, but there's a problem already, and this problem comes up now in the book of Judges. So they get the land, sort of. By the time you get through Joshua, it's like, fine, they've conquered the land. They're there. The land gets divided up to the 12 tribes. They had the kids, now they had the land, now we're going for it. Okay, great. But there's a problem. Then the book of Judges introduces us to the problem. The problem is that they actually didn't do it, the extermination, this harem. They were supposed to, but they couldn't carry it off. And Judges chapters 1 through 3, which I'm asking you to read, I don't know, just read that carefully. Like, what do you, when you read Judges 1 through 3, what are the reasons given there by the narrative for why they couldn't carry it out? It seems that there's not just one reason, there are a bunch of them. Um, reasons that stand in tension with one another. Maybe they didn't carry it out because they were just bad. They just didn't obey God's laws. They couldn't do it. Or maybe they couldn't do it because God didn't want them to do it. He actually told them to do it, but actually didn't want them to do it because he wanted there to be some people left over so that they could learn to practice war on them. Kind of like, I want your, I want your bullies to kind of stay around so that you can practice like anti-bullying techniques, you know, and live through it and become resilient. Then he seems to say, uh, you know, There are just various responses in in Judges. And we find out they have not actually taken the land. And the fact that they have not fully taken the land becomes a problem for Israel. Becomes a political problem. Becomes a military problem. Becomes a religious problem. Becomes a social problem. Because Israel now in the book of Judges is struggling. They are on the struggle bus in the book of Judges. They're struggling hard. They can't just worship the Lord alone. They end up worshiping other gods. Like this god Baal. Baal comes up a lot. Who is this Baal? I'll write Baal. B-A-A-L is how it's typically spelled in English. 
Baal was kind of like a popular young male deity who was known for his, his divine help and fertility of land and of women's bodies for children, things like that. In a polytheistic world, you might kind of look and see what your options are, you know? People who live in a polytheistic society, you know, the idea that a lot of gods existed and that you could just pick and choose and worship different ones for different reasons was a common idea. Restricting people to just one god in a polytheistic world would kind of sound like, you know, telling you all, you may only watch one TV show. Pick your show. You'd be like, I don't want to pick. Why would I pick a show? Like, there are all these shows. Like, I'm just, sometimes I'm in the mood for this. Sometimes I'm in the mood for that, okay? So polytheism is like this in a way. You have options. Monotheism restricts options and, and consolidates them in one figure. So they would worship deities like Baal. You'll also see mention of a deity named Asherah or possibly Astarte. These are both female deities. Baal is, is, is a man, a male. And they kind of get entangled up in this, and God gets very mad. And so he delivers them over to oppression, and you're going to see these cycles in the book of Judges. The Israelites sin, so it's like this, this never-ending cycle. I'll draw it on the board, because why not? They sin, then they go into oppression, or there's a consequence of some kind. Consequence, that says. Okay? And then that consequence leads to a repentance. Okay? Which lasts for a little while, and then everybody's kind of saved, or uh, I'll even write the word salvation here next to repentance, because the repentance leads to salvation from the enemies, real-world deliverance. But then it goes right back to the sin again and the problem, and so on. The deliverers who actually help them in the stage of repentance salvation are actually called judges in the book of Judges. Um, uh, Shofetim or Shofet, it's in the textbook, you can see it there. They're not judges in the sense like, you know, with a robe in a courtroom with a gavel. They're more like guerrilla insurgent military leaders. It's kind of like the Revolutionary War period of early Israel, okay? They have these singular leaders who rise up, everybody rallies around them, they kind of, they, they, they get off the hook for a little bit, but then they fall right back into it. And there's some famous names here. Gideon, for example, story of Gideon down by the river and lapping up the water and all that stuff, and, and Samson, Samson with the hair and Delilah, that, he's one of the judges, okay? You find out, though, that these characters, despite their kind of Sunday school cachet as, you know, as characters that have fun stories, they're also extremely violent, and they also participate in the very cycle of the oppression or the sin and then the oppression and the consequences that they also solve. This is the problem with charismatic people, you know? Um, movie stars and athletes, we find out more and more about this in the Me Too era. We, we admire people for their wonderful skills, their alluring sexuality, you know, it's so great. Until it's not great, and then you find out that there's excess and there are problems. So the judges are kind of like this. They're not really good guys, but they're not bad guys. They're somewhere in this murky area. The book of Judges ends on a note of absolute pornographic violence. Israel descends into total chaos and civil war, and you'll read this. It's hard to read. I warn you in advance. A woman is butchered, gang-raped, and cut up into pieces, and mailed FedEx-style throughout Israel to say, can you believe this? And the whole place descends into civil war. And the book ends with a haunting statement, repeated four times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. After the ending of a book like that, you may begin to wonder, does Israel need a more stable form of leadership? These judges clearly aren't the solution. Moses is long gone. Joshua is long gone. I mean, what are they supposed to do? 
the sense is somehow they're supposed to just be this utopian community just led by God. But is that really practical? Is that really feasible? Can you have a community like that? It'd be so awesome, like what if this whole class, just us, we were just marooned on an island and we had to come up with like everything, government, we were just all gonna die together. Wouldn't it be, someone would come up with the idea and be like, let's just like not have a leader. And let's just like, I don't know, let's just hear from God directly, like all of us. <laughs> I mean, that's a great system, but it requires something that is hard to get in the world. Namely, God's voice booming down direct and clearly understood commands to everyone. If you don't have that, now somebody's got to say, well, I think God is saying this. And someone else is like, well, I don't think so. God was telling me this. Ah, ah. Now suddenly we're into it, right? So God's voice is not booming down like in the Exodus, maybe by the time we get to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Now it's like a question, how are we going to be led? This leads us into the crisis of the book of 1 Samuel. Namely, Israel's going to get a king. And you're going to read all about this, so I don't need to summarize too much, but I want to say, Israel demands a king. They see that this cycle of violence and problems is not solvable through their current methods. And so the people are like, look, give us a king. This is group, the Philistines. Now we have new international competitors on the scene who are next door to Israel, the Philistines. They even steal the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, things are going badly if your Ark, the Ark of the Covenant is getting stolen by your enemy. And the people are like, help, we need a king. Give us a king. And so they get a king namely an individual named Saul, Saul, King Saul. He's the, Israel's first king. But God says a funny thing after Saul is made king. God says, yeah, you know, I don't know. I'm not happy about this, actually. Actually, Israel should have never had a king. I don't want them to have a king. I'm the king, says God. I'm their king. So they disobeyed me in asking for a king. And you're like, wait, what was all that stuff back in, in Judges? Like that they're saying that they kind of needed a king. And Deuteronomy chapter 18, if you want to flip back and look at it, also has rules for how Israel will behave when they have a king. And it's very circumscribed. The king is not given absolute powers by any means. So it seems like we've been building toward this idea of the king. And then God's like, no, utopian ideal for us is no king. I'm the king directly, just like at Mount Sinai, just like when I was booming the law down to you. That's really where this is at. But if you have to have a king, fine, go pick your king. They pick King Saul. In short, he's a tragic failure. He does small things that are wrong, but in God's eyes and in the prophet Samuel's eyes, the book of Samuel is named after Samuel, the prophet who's the main character there, at least in the beginning, the infractions are not so small. They're big deals. Oh, Ruth, I don't want to skip over Ruth. Ruth doesn't play a huge plot role necessarily in this, and in fact, in the Jewish arrangement of the canon or the books, the book of Ruth comes much later in the so-called writings. In Christian Bibles, though, Ruth is right here. It's a touching story that I wish we had more time to talk about. Um, about a woman who finds a home during a time of famine and hardship, becomes an Israelite, even though she wasn't an Israelite initially, marries into the family, they have kids, everyone's happy. A few generations later, those kids are the descendants of King David. So this woman, Ruth, becomes integrated into David's story as his great-great-grandmother or something like that. Okay. They get a king, though, in 1 Samuel. By the time you get to 1 Samuel 15, 16, they've got a king, but there's a problem for the king, Saul. There's a rival on the scene, namely a young, strapping young man who's so beautiful, so wonderful. The ladies love him. People are even singing songs about him. They love him so much. His name is David. And God then undermines Saul while Saul is still king and has Samuel go and anoint with oil. This word's going to come up again in a moment. Anoint with oil. Another king, while he's still king, namely this guy David, he chooses him in a special way. David is, now think of our, our theme of echoes, right? Things that echo forward. 
David is a youngest son of, in his family. Where have we seen youngest sons before? Genesis, the reversal of the primogeniture, so to speak, the rights of the firstborn, prominent theme in Genesis. Youngest children were preferred over the oldest. David is the youngest son. He's also a shepherd. God seems to like shepherds. Why does God like shepherds? It's just a theme you gotta track. He likes it, okay? He liked Jacob and, 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 and these characters who are out there herding goats and sheep and so on. And David is one of these characters. He's a, she- he's a shepherd and he's a youngest son. Okay. God looks at David and says, yes, you. There's something about you that I like. I like you. I want you. You're my man. You're the man after my own heart. You're the one I want. You're the king. But Saul's still the king. Super awkward. They have to kind of be like co-kings for a while and there's intrigue. And by the end of the book of 1 Samuel, in a tragic scene, Saul commits suicide on top of a mountain. And David thus becomes the undisputed king by the time we get into 2 Samuel. By the way, these book divisions, 1 and 2 Samuel, they're not natural to the text necessarily. They're just something that later editors kind of did to organize the material. So really, Samuel is one story. Really, Joshua judges and Samuel are all kind of one story. So the book divisions themselves may be a little artificial. We're not really sure how they originated or where they even came from, but they're there. When David is king, now we get our full-blown now we get a full-blown leader that God actually wants and that is supposed to be the model and the endure, indeed the enduring model for kingship in all of Israel. And I want to read an important passage and then we're going to transition into talking about these terms. Um, this important passage is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's something I'm going to ask you to read, but it's worth reading out loud now and then having you read it again later because it's an important passage. After David becomes the undisputed king, he kind of settles down, he rests a little bit, He gets Jerusalem as a capital. He brings the ark to the city of Jerusalem. He's consolidating symbolic power as well. And he asks God, hey God, can I build you a temple? I want to build you a temple. I want to build you a house, an important center of worship so it's all in one place. However, the word of the Lord comes to David and it says this. This is what the Lord says. This is uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5 and following. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Remember that thing from the book of Exodus, the tabernacle? Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Okay, okay, God, we get it. Okay, you don't want a house, okay? You've been moving in a tent. You don't want a house. You never suggested a house, okay? He's he's driving this home. He says, though, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I'll provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home. So God's like, you want to build me a home? No, you don't build me a home. I'm going to build you a home. Okay? Wicked people will not oppress them. I'm going to do this. Verse 11, the Lord declares to you, to David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, when you die, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Not for a little while, forever. And I will be his father, 
There's our father language again. God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish, punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul. Little dig there, reminder, that God had taken away the love from Saul. But he's saying, now this new royal line I'm giving you through you, David, I will never take my love away from it. Never, never, never. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Do you notice this repeated forever language? It's so extreme, isn't it? I mean, God is just making a promise. It's almost like a marriage vow. When you make a marriage vow, like, what are you doing? Promising to love someone forever? It's like, you don't really know that person. Not like you're going to after decades of marriage. How can you promise something like that? How could God promise something like this to David that he's really gonna do this forever? What if the Davidic kings, this new line of kings, what if it fails? What if they sin in the same way that Saul had sinned? This text seems to be not caring about that in any way. The promise, however, is for eternal kingship for David and his line, and that's a radical thing. That's the story that we're tracking with this week, all the way up to that point. I've summarized it in very broad terms, and there's much more you're going to discover through your readings, through the textbook. But now we get to these terms, okay? Let's do these terms. These terms we need to define carefully, think about, continue thinking about as we go forward in the Bible. Okay. What do they mean? First, and I'm just going to give a taste of these. There's obviously much more that can be said about all of this. That goes for the whole semester, actually, than what I'm saying here in these lectures, than what we read about, and then what we talk about on the panels, for sure. First, land. The land. Why is the land important? Just to do a little Hebrew here, why not? Write the Hebrew words as well, if we can. Eretz. Eretz. Eretz Yisrael. I'll say it, then you say it. Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael. The land of Israel. This is a key concept in, in these texts. In fact, back in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 25, if you want to go back and reread Leviticus 25 later, God makes a stunning declaration about the land, in fact. Even though he's having Israel go in, in the book of Joshua, in this kind of stunning moment, and commit what looks for all the world like something of a genocide on the native population, which seems to be like all for Israel's benefit, and it's all about them, and they can take their land, God actually has a different thing to say. Leviticus 25 is about the land getting a Sabbath, and God says very clearly, I think this is verse 23, God says, the land belongs to me. I own the land. The land is mine, says the Lord. So the land has a sacred status to God. Why that land? Why not like somewhere in Southern Africa or Western China or in the United States or in South America? I don't know. The text never describes why that exact land. You could come up with all kinds of kooky reasons and geographical stuff, but the fact is God just chooses that land. Election. He elects it. He wants it. And he says it belongs to me. This is going to resonate later in our text. Spoiler alerts when the land gets abused by people who are not Israel, who come in and kick Israel off the land. By the time we get to the New Testament, by the way, when Jesus is walking around doing his thing, the land is owned, or so it is claimed, by the Romans, the Roman Empire. They say the land is ours. And Caesar, our, our Lord, who is in the Roman religious system, the son of God, to bring salvation to all the earth, and the gospel or the good news of his peace to all the empire, is claiming to own the land, okay? So just wait for this. You can already see the conflict of what's set up. 
How can someone else claim to be God? How can someone else claim to own this land that God has given to Israel? And in fact, that God has said is his own land and no one else's. No one else's. So in Joshua, they get the land and the status of the land is going to be very important. Will Israel get to keep it? Okay. Will they get to keep it? King, the next word. Okay. The Hebrew word here is melech. I'll say it and you say it. Melech. Melech. It's a good word. As I had mentioned earlier, the Bible sets up a narrative that prepares you for there to be a king. But God's very touchy about this situation of kingship. In Israel, a king is not to be an absolute ruler. In, in Israel's context in the ancient Near East, say in Egypt to the south and Mesopotamia to the northeast, kingship was treated a little different. In Egypt, the pharaoh is kind of like a, a member of the divine family. He's kind of like God's son, you could say, made human flesh on earth. In Mesopotamia, the kings were not gods necessarily or deified, although in a couple of cases they actually were. But this is crucial to know. The king in ancient Israel has a special relationship to God. It's not like the king is just like just another human. Even though sometimes the text does move in that direction and very much democratizes the idea of the king, you could say. Um, in fact, people like America's founding fathers and others in European history um, would look back to the book of Deuteronomy itself and to Israel's kingship as models for a more democratic type society. Why could they do that? Because Deuteronomy 18, which lays out the law of the king, kind of makes it seem as though the king is not an absolute authority. He's subject to, say, a prophet who can like, tell him by religious authority what you're doing is not right, and there's a system built in for critique. Whereas usually we think of like great authoritative kings in the ancient world just having absolute power, running roughshod over the populace, doing whatever they want. Israel's tradition of kingship is going to be one in which the king is critiqued, in which the king does not have absolute power. And this is, this is a stunning thing, okay? This language of kingship, though, specifically the Davidic kingship and the Davidic line with all that language of forever, 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 I'm establishing your throne, is language that becomes really important for New Testament authors when talking about Jesus. Because if Jesus is said to be in the genealogical and spiritual lineage, heritage of King David in particular, that makes him an inheritor of this promise that God had made to David, the promise of a throne and of kingship forever. What about this word, Messiah? This is a great word. We'll get some more Hebrew terms up here. The word in Hebrew is, um, oops, sorry about that, Mashiach, and then in the verbal form, it's Mashach. So I'll say it, then you say it. Mashiach, Mashach. Mashiach, Mashach. Mashiach is where we get the word Messiah. In fact, in Greek, when it's translated, when Mashiach is translated into Greek, it's where we get the word Christos, which is where we get the word, see that? Christ, like Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, Mr. Christ, okay? Um, Christ is a title, it means kind of like the word christened. Have you heard of this word of like a christening? The idea of, it, it literally means in Hebrew, mashach as a verb, means to smear someone with oil. Smear their head with oil. And it's something that's done in the Bible for priestly leadership, for consecration, for setting something aside for special use, and also for telling someone in an official way that they are king. That's what the word mashiach means. That's what the word Messiah means in ancient Israel. 
And the word Messiah, by the way, Mashiach, and the verb Mashach, is not just used in some kind of spacey, vague sense for a future person who might come later, let's hope and pray someone will be our Messiah. No, it's a very here and now kind of term throughout the Old Testament. In fact, we've already read uses of the term Mashach and Mashiach in texts that I've had you read. Like, for example, when Jacob goes to Bethel and he, he smears some oil on a rock and he has that dream of the angels going up and down, that's the word Mashach, Mashiach, anoint or anointed thing, the, the stone itself at Bethel. When priests like Aaron, uh, Moses' brother Aaron are consecrated to be like the head priest of Israel, he has oil smeared on him, Mashach. He becomes the Mashiach, the anointed one, literally, physically. Um, other characters throughout the text become a Mashiach, an anointed one in various ways. Saul does, by the way, in um, 1 Samuel 9.6. Tomorrow about this time, I'm sorry, uh, 1 Samuel 9.16. Tomorrow about this time, I, God, will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall Mashach him to be ruler over my people. David says numerous times that he will not raise his hand against Saul because, David says, Saul is the Mashiach, the anointed one, God's chosen ruler, God's one that was smeared with oil as a leader. So this term goes up a lot. It is by no way restricted to just like some future orientation, but rather it's someone who's anointed with oil for leadership. That's the root of this term. This is where it comes from. Do you see how some of these things are working together? The idea of Okay, you have a land, but who's going to rule over the land? Okay, you have a king, but like, what's the status of that king? The king's kind of like a member of God's family. Now leads us to this term son, the sonship of the king. How can Jesus be God's only son? What does that language of sonship mean? You heard it in 2 Samuel 7 while I was reading. God had said to David, I will be like to your descendants. Really, it's Solomon, but then it really he's talking about all of them. I will be like a father to him. Did you hear that fathership language? That language of the father-son relationship of the king is used elsewhere too. Psalm 2, very famously. We haven't read the Psalms yet. Um, I asked you to read the Ellen Davis book and she talks about Psalms. Psalm 2 reads various things, this and that. I, Psalm 2, 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. Who's the speaker here and who's the recipient of the speech in Psalm 2? Christians can read Jesus into that and Christians often do. But there's a more immediate context in Psalm 2. It's about kingship, right? It's about the king who is to receive God's promise to rule over these nations. The king is in a special relationship to God and the image for that special relationship is father and son. So to call Jesus God's son, what are we really saying? Are we saying like God had a wife and they had a baby? Like that's literal sonship language. We're not quite saying it that way, what does it mean? It's rooted in this language of Israel's experience with leadership and the special place the king had with God, dating back even to David's relationship to God and to David's descendants' relationship to God as father, as son. What does it mean to call Jesus our Lord? This is a weighty and elevated thing. I see now that there's no way we can really get a handle on this, this language of lordship quite yet but it's going to have to be a theme that we're going to have to follow because one of the earliest core proclamations that Christians made, and indeed for you today as, as a Christian, one of the most core things that you can say to yourself, to your family, to your friends, and to the world is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is the proclamation that Jesus is identified with God, 
and basically the everything ruler in your life. Christians have been proclaiming this about Jesus for centuries, for nearly two millennia. To proclaim that Jesus is Lord, though, you have to proclaim that other rulers in the world and other forces are not Lord, and that can be a tricky thing to do in a complicated world. So we'll, we'll track down this theme a lot more later.